Hey guys, this is Stowe Bishop with Radio Rothbard, and I want to let you guys know about another great Mises event we have coming up on November 4th in Fort Myers, Florida. As you know, everyday Americans feel the political capture of the economy. Inflation, taxes, and regulatory costs hit our paychecks and our savings. The regulatory capture of the medical industries, food and energy production, and the various instruments of big tech empower the regime with new tools to promote their latest ideological cause. The ever-growing burden of government debt has become a crisis without any political will to address it. We're going to be talking about these very issues at this event in Fort Myers. And best of all, we have a discount code for Radio Rothbard listeners. If you use promo code RR2023, RR as in Radio Rothbard, 2023, you'll get $10 off at this event. If you want to learn more, visit Mises.org slash FL2023. FL is in Florida. Look forward to seeing you there. Welcome back to Radio Rothbard. I'm Ryan McMakin. I'm senior editor with the Mises Institute. And with me, of course, is my co-host, Tho Bishop. And we're back for another episode. And we're going to talk a little bit about uh, not directly the Israel-Hamas war, but its effects on domestic policy in the United States. And what should we expect? And if you've been around for a while, if you remember the days after 9-11, you remember 2003, 2002, you know that we're in a very dangerous time when the pro-war faction, much of which will include uh, the Republican Party, they don't want to let a crisis go to waste. This was a term used a lot, of course, during covid where cons conservatives who were actually good on COVID um, pointed, pointed this quotation out a whole lot, was that, hey, there's a crisis on, they're going to use it to massively increase government power and control over our lives. Look out. Well, we're back in this very similar situation. We're going to try and use a, uh, a problematic foreign policy situation to import, impose more regime control on the lives of Americans and make them pay a whole lot more money to do whatever it is that the regime wants to do. So let's look at some of the the specifics. And I guess I'll just get the ball rolling with something that's uh, at this point fairly speculative uh, and isn't related to a lot of the other topics necessarily. But I think it won't be long uh, before we start to see growing calls for uh, the United States to host a lot of Palestinian refugees. And this is going to follow... Um, a, 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 the usual pattern where the United States goes in, participates in a war, helps destroy uh, an entire country or a few cities. Uh, the refugees come streaming out because their homes have all been destroyed by the hundreds of thousands. And then Americans are lectured about the need to host these refugees because of something that their regime did. And uh, certainly this has been more of a big deal in Europe, where the numbers have been larger, uh, but certainly in the United States as well, where Americans have been expected to host Syrian refugees and Iraqi refugees, um, which would not have been necessary had the United States not bombed these countries. And so I think what we're likely to see now is uh, Palestine, uh, specifically the Gaza Strip, bombed with a whole lot of U.S. money. And then Americans will be browbeaten into hosting tens of thousands, if not even more, 
of the refugees created by American war spending. And we've already seen this to some extent with Jamal Bowman, that member of Congress who pulled the uh, uh, the fire alarm in an attempt to disrupt voting in the House and, of course, now faces no sanction whatsoever uh, for interfering with voting. Uh, if you're if you're an 80 year old grandma and you interfere with voting, you go to prison for years. But if you're Jamal Bowman, you probably get a medal. And he's now saying that Americans should uh, be hosting Gazan refugees. So uh, get ready for that. Uh, that's something we're going to be hearing. It could be that the uh, the GOP will. Uh, uh, capitalize on Islamophobia to keep that from happening. Maybe the odds of that happening are low. But I think that's just one thing that's probably uh, fairly predictable. It's just hard to say how much uh, traction it's going to get at this time. We're looking back at some of the, the estimates out there for the number of people that were displaced as a result of the uh, America War on Terror. Um, and I've seen estimates out there, one by Brown University's uh, Cost of War Project that estimated that 37 million people were displaced as a result of various conflicts, uh, Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, Yemen, Somalia, Pakistan, Philippines, and Libya all being worked into their figures there, uh, 9.2 coming from Iraq, um, 7.1 from Syria, 5.3 from Afghanistan, um, and the rest from there. And, um, you know, you, you are already seeing, you know, obviously there's a, an element of the Democratic Party. Um, it's interesting, this conflict, I, I think, is causing strife on, on both, within both parties from some of the growing um, ideological factions. Um, you have certain Republicans, you know, you have half that are um, really very much kind of embracing an immigration hard line on this. Um, Ron DeSantis has been making this a major part of his campaign rhetoric the last few days. You have sort of the invade the world, invite the world Republican sect that's out there. Nikki Haley um, has been pushing back against some of DeSantis's rhetoric on that. On the Democratic side, you have kind of your you know, essentially simplify it as, as Hillary Clinton brand Democrats that have taken a very strong Israeli side on this. And then you have you know, what might be overly simplified as the squad that's taking sort of a social justice narrative to the conflict. And this not only involves their reaction to this on a foreign policy foundation, but does wrap around to the role that they see the government should be taking on domestic issues, particularly refugees and immigration questions. And of course, this has been a major issue um, you know, the, the, the continent that has dealt the most with the pressures from this, you know, slightly off topic from a domestic conversation, but is Europe. And you're seeing, you know, France, for example, um, you know, cracking down on pro-Palestinian protest um, as a response to that because, you know, the amount of people from the Middle East, again, moved out, uh, displaced because of the war on terror. You have major growing communities of people with ties to the Middle East, ties to Gaza, ties to just you know heightened awareness of this from you know an ethnic di dimension there, from a religious perspective there, and this is creating very real issues within Europe. You know concerns um, with you know this has created political pressure that has fueled um, you know populist anti-EU sentiments for a while now, but this is only kind of being you know kind of juiced up to the the front burner. Um, once again, you know, 
alternative for Deutschland, um, the AFD party in Germany has already been on the rise um, in response to economic populism and inflation rates and a variety of other concerns, part of it being pre-existing concerns over the immigration problem. I have a feeling that they are only going to be further strengthened as a result of these these tensions out there. And you, you know, see you see these things coming up and, and when we're dealing with something, you know, I think the hubris of the sort of current political era where, you know, the assumption was that, you know, so long as we have a a democratic pro process and you know, you know, we, we can kind of unite these people with very different backgrounds under a common taxpayer. Um, that you know, you're, you, we, we can solve all this stuff with with the all the great tools that modern, you know, modern. Uh, uh, I, I, I know you don't like the word neoliberal, but like you know, neoliberal, you know, de democratic policies. However, you want to want to phrase that the current world order that all these things can be, can just be wrapped around with with pure political will. And I have a feeling. I have a feeling that that's probably not going to play out, particularly when you have, I think, the 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 the, the, ex, the extreme emotions that an Israeli-led um, counteroffensive is, is going to play out. So I, I think there's a lot of of assumptions that have guided Western governments, including the U.S., that are going to be very severely tested in the next coming months. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you, you can check out, if you're interested in more on this, uh, Zach Yost and I, in our most recent uh, War, Economy, and State podcast, talked about the role of a variety of ethnic interest groups in the U.S. driving uh, American foreign policy. And, uh, yeah, those those people don't move here and then just all blend into a melting pot and then just abandon any whatever, uh, uh, whatever allegiances they might have had to the country of origin. Um, so I think that is going to continue to be an issue. Now, another issue that uh, we might note is that uh, it seems the, uh, the, the strategy here is to keep the Ukraine war going, essentially cloaking it in support for Israel. Um, as far as I can tell, the plan now is to just wrap up together uh, foreign policy support, many billions of dollars for both Ukraine and Israel into single foreign aid packages. And you would think that the way that uh, the world is freaking out over the Levant, uh, that Ukraine would very much go on the back burner. And I think it is gonna go on the back burner in the sense of media coverage. Uh, you're seeing very, very little about Ukraine now uh, in the headlines, which at this point is probably good for Ukraine, uh, at least as far as US domestic policy goes, because support has been slipping fast. People are sick of Zelensky, who's uh, just something of a man-child who shows up and makes a bunch of demands and has nothing to show for it. And if he kind of recedes into the background, then it's probably even easier then for Congress to say, oh, well, we just uh, look away. We sent them another $40 billion. Uh, but that was part of a larger uh, aid package, which, which helps Israel as well. So I don't see any real effect on Ukraine support here um, unless the GOP really finds a way to push uh, cutting back on that monetary support. It's probably now just going to be baked into the foreign aid numbers. But I could be wrong. It could be that the uh, the military situation will worsen there to the point where people recognize that it's futile and pointless. But as far as I can see, the Israel situation doesn't particularly hurt Ukraine. It makes it easier for uh, people in back rooms and inside insider deals 
uh, through insider deals to put more money together through Ukraine and just keep that gravy train uh, going. And so we should expect that at least for another year in Ukraine in spite of whatever might be going on in Israel. Uh, currently, the most recent buzz in D.C. is that the Biden administration is pushing for a $100 billion foreign aid package that includes money for Israel and Ukraine. You'll note the the, the, the way those two are, are listed there, Israel and Ukraine. And yet from early reports, the majority of that $100 billion is expected to go to Ukraine with $10 billion of that $100 um, being purposed for Israel. Um, you know, there's you know, obviously American support for Israel, as, as our audience, I'm sure, is extremely aware of. Um, there has been very robust support for the Israeli military coming from D.C. for quite some time. Um, in fact, in 2016, um, there was a decision made that basically set auto pay for Israeli military support up to close to $4 billion um, every year. Um, so even when you know, there was a lot of uh, a lot of statements by pro-Israeli politicians pointing to the drama that is still unfolding in the Speaker of the House issue and how that was holding up uh, Washington um, and, and their ability to, you know, to, to, to deal with this in obviously a very pro-Israeli state way. Um, you know, there's been an automatic funding mechanism in there for, for quite some time that is, I, th I think, fairly unique to Israel. Um, so yeah, absolutely. The, the the ability to lump these two together is going to be a, a major boon to um, to the, the Mitch McConnells, to the Joe Bidens, to the Uniparty apparatus as a whole, where you really had seen growing um, restraint. I even I spoke to someone that works for a uh, pro-Ukraine aide congressman um, of late and voicing um, you know the lack of support that. Uh, such policies had, um, you know, in, in the district that I live in, and at the time, this was this was before um, the Saturday of uh, Hamas's attack. Um, you know, there seemed to be kind of broad acceptance that any further interest in Ukraine was uh, quickly losing any sort of political potency. Um, I do not have a feeling that's going to be a problem going forward. Um, so, you know, it's it's while while there is going to be some PR dynamics out there, right, uh, Zelensky. Um, was not accepted as a guest in Israel of late um, during the American, you know, uh, during Blinken's you know, uh, run through the, the Middle East and, and meeting with various uh, actors, state actors um, in the region. Um, you know, that, that was not necessarily a great PR dynamic for Zelensky. Um, I do not think he is going to be going broke anytime soon. Um, and it's also worth noting, though, that, that Israel um, had been one of the more reluctant countries um, in terms of, of providing military aid to the Ukrainian situation, you know, because of, you know, their own defensive concerns and the like, which given the state failure of Israel um, in the time of crisis, the kind of <laughs> the different situation there. Um, but I, I know that there was um, some interesting stuff out there about the degree to which uh, American weapon reserves that were typically based in Israel had been re relocated uh, into Ukraine for that conflict. So I, I have no doubt that you know this this hundred million billion dollar aid package is uh, is not going to be the end of Washington's attempts to rearm both sides of things. Um, but definitely, I, th I think being able to use the cover of Israel um, in the the significantly higher level of public opinion support 
um, for assisting military, uh, Israeli military uh, aid is going to end up, once again, sending more money to Ukraine. So, Americans, you know, you can't pay your rent. Even a small trip to the grocery store costs you 100 bucks. But don't, don't worry. Zelensky and uh, Ukrainian oligarchs will continue to enrich themselves on your hard-earned cash. So uh, I, I don't think this war will distract from that. Well, and of course, you had uh, Janet Yellen reassure the world that don't worry, um, you know, the, the U.S. is in a position to fund, to, to certainly we can fund two, two active war fronts. Um, so again, <laughs> as long as Janet Yellen says it's okay, um, you know, we're, you know we, we have nothing to worry about. Um, and of course, uh, Connor O'Keefe has a great article on The Wire this week addressing that very issue. Um, but, but it's okay. Janet Yellen says we're perfectly fine. You know, that, that money printer will keep, uh, keep going hot. Um, well, we'll see what, what Jay Powell has to say about that. But, um, but Janet Yellen assures us that, yeah, don't worry. We can certainly finance both, both sides of this conflict. Yes, Janet Yellen, geopolitical expert and uh, expert on inflation, too, who uh, predict, who called our, our current inflation rate perfectly and knew exactly what was going on her whole time as chairman of the Fed. I mean, just remarkable who you're expected to listen to in Washington and take these people seriously. But just for the, uh, the, the general position is clear, right? Reading the Washington Post over the weekend, um, and it was, uh, we can just look at a typical line from... One column uh, from the 15th by a writer or a post writer named Danielle Allen. Uh, it says, oh, it, it was all very dramatic, maudlin language about how the United States is being pulled into the darkness by the conflict in Israel. And uh, just this, yeah, a very effective sort of um, language for people who haven't been paying attention to planet Earth for the last hundred years and think that this is some sort of new frontier in, uh, in terrible warfare. Um, but uh, her main point of the article was to say, quote, we must continue helping our allies win these wars, quote unquote. So she was tying the whole Ukraine and Israel thing very much together as uh, it's an ongoing part of the war for democracy. So the position hasn't changed at all. It's still maintaining that line about how, hey, this is all about democracy. If there's any sort of barbarism going out there, the real problem is that uh, it's a threat to democracy. And I don't think we'll see any real change in that rhetoric. Um, it is harder to tie what's going on to Israel to what's going on in terms of threats, everyday threats to Americans in the United States. So fortunately, it isn't like 9-11 in the sense that Americans are completely freaking out and are going to support whatever it is the regime tells them to do in terms of fighting uh, the enemy, whoever that might be. But uh, I think it does make it significantly easier uh, to call for more U.S. support for international war simply by claiming, oh, these people are coming for you next. And that seems to be some of what's going on there. And that takes us to our next topic. And I think that is, uh, are we going to see more calls for anti-terrorism federal powers from the federal government? Of course, that's al already been so massively expanded over the last 20 years uh, through the, the Patriot Act through the FISA courts blatantly abusing their power, through nonstop spying by the NSA. I mean, there's so much going on that was not permissible 23 years ago and which Americans now just accept as just everyday spy powers from the federal government. But I'm sure they can come up with plenty of new stuff that they want. 
And you're starting to see some early rumblings of that. FBI's uh, Christopher Ray, a truly despicable person, is already out there saying, oh, look out. Uh, Hamas is, is coming next uh, and planning terror attacks on U.S. soil. Hey, local law enforcement, tell the FBI everything. Get us involved in, in whatever it is you're doing every day. And so they're clearly priming the pump for new and additional federal powers and federal activity uh, throughout the nation in terms of anti-terrorism. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. But I haven't seen a whole lot of very specific calls for any new legislation or powers at this point. But of course, America's kind of past the point where you pass actual legislation to give vast new powers to the federal government. It's just, hey, we'll pass some executive orders and voila, the FBI can now do this new thing. And so unless they get real pushback uh, from the GOP on that, as long for the moment, right, once you get a Republican in the White House again, I can't imagine much opposition there from anybody. But at the moment, you might continue to see some opposition from the GOP based on whatever latest police powers Biden wants. Um, but I haven't seen a whole lot of specifics on that. But the FBI is uh, behaving exactly as you would expect, uh, claiming that their, their role is all the more important and they're planning new attacks on American soil. So be ready and, and uh, we can't let down our, our guard now. So the rhetoric there is very similar to what we saw in 2002. It's just a question of how they're going to translate that into hard policy. And of course, it'd be interesting to see how the priorities of the FBI shift um, given the focus from, you know, particularly the Biden administration has been on, you know, Moms for Liberty groups and, you know, people yelling at the school board and January Sixers and, you know, just a couple of weeks before uh, the, the attacks in Israel, you had, um, you know, it, it reported that there was a whole new task force dedicated to dealing with the MAGA extremists and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I am in, in, interested to see how that shift of the FBI's priorities, you know, does it remain particularly going into election season? Um, you know, do, do they continue to prioritize the political opposition over concerns dealing with, um, with a new terror threat? I mean, obviously the call for new resources will, will be there um, regardless of it. Um, you know, again, perfect justification to, 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 to bump up their budget once more. And if, if not immediately, then you know, the ability for the uh, FBI's terror factory to uh, create a new reason for that is uh, certainly uh, well proven to be an effective operation on that side. Um, I, I do think, though, that one thing that is worth discussing, and, and you, you had an article last week in the immediate aftermath talking about the, you know, the need for America to stay out of the conflict broadly, um, but I think unlike the Ukraine situation, which would require a, a significant escalation um, an engagement with, uh, with NATO and Russia to bring American troops into that conflict. We are already seeing um, moves by the U.S. military, um, you know, reports of you know, 2,000 Marines um, heading into the theater there, um, you know, American aircraft carriers um, en route over there. The, uh, the danger, you know, we, we saw recently play out um, riots and protests going on in front of American embassies um, throughout the Middle East. And I, th I think the real concern is, you know, does this evolve into a, a hot war situation that brings America directly into the fold in some way? And obviously, you know, a, that, that escalation would only further amplify um, these, these broader dynamics, whether it's on the, you know, on the economic front, on the civil liberties front, on just the 
you know, the, the, the dangers, you know, the, of, of a, a growing, you know, multinational, you know, the, the prospects of a multinational war breaking out from this, um, you know, war is the health of the state. And that dynamic is something that I, I think makes this situation even more dangerous than the, you know, anything that we have seen so far play out on the Ukraine-Russia dynamic. Um, and something that we should all be, be you know, praying for, uh, for it not to get to that point. Well, and that brings us to the next topic, where I think in terms of very specific uh, new foreign policy agitation you're going to see is for a war with Iran. And we know the neoconservatives have wanted war with Iran for a long, long time, uh, really since the days of uh, talking about war with Iraq back in 2002, 2003. They uh, would have been perfectly happy with a two-pronged war, including Iran at that time. Of course, Iran is much larger than Iraq, uh, much more difficult to uh, actually fight a war there. But, boy, that's just been nonstop talk, really, among the warmongers for the last 20-something years. Uh, John McCain was obsessed with the idea, and it's just never really gone away. And so now you've got Iran, which is known to funnel funds to Hamas and Hezbollah, uh, which is up in Lebanon. And uh, don't forget, by the way, there was a 2007-2008 conflict between Hezbollah and Israel, which Hezbollah won, uh, where uh, the, a lot of that is done with Iranian funds. And so they're going to use, I think, that connection then uh, to agitate for war with Iran, and they maybe see this as their chance, finally, to get a full-blown, full-on bombing campaign, boots on the ground, Iraq-style invasion in Iran is certainly the goal that some of these people uh, clearly want. And I, I can't imagine Nikki Haley would have any problem with a new war in Iran and probably people like uh, Joe Lieberman uh, and his group. He's still out there, uh, the former uh, U.S. senator who always uh, was agitating for war with Iran. And I would expect that to be where they start to get very specific in terms of where they want new war. And uh, that would, of course, be disastrous, highly expensive, uh, draw the U.S. into additional conflict with both Russia and China, and, of course, massively drive up the price of oil because uh, the Biden administration insists on restricting oil production in North America, even though the North Americans could easily be uh, self-sufficient in terms of oil production. And so that all stands to create some significant economic uh, and political disruptions within the United States. The question is, have Americans learned their lesson yet on that? Uh, I think maybe some... Uh, some progress has been made where Americans didn't fall for the call for uh, boots on the ground in Syria. The Americans invaded uh, Syria anyway with a small-scale invasion in eastern Syria, but that was mostly kept off the front pages, and there wasn't a need for a whole lot of support for that, uh, for the executive branch to get that going. That would be harder to, to do with Iran uh, unless all they want is just yet another small-scale occupation in Iran so they can just interfere with the the regime there. Who knows? There's a variety of different options. But I think we should definitely expect to see calls for further escalation with Iran, which then feeds right into your fears of a larger regional war. And I think that was probably the likely place where you would then see the most escalation. And also, which 
pulls us in with other global powers as well. Yeah, many of the, the pundits out there that are the biggest cheerleaders of the Iraq war, you know, you, you, turning on Fox News and you have Lindsey Graham up there talking about holy war, um, you know, you, again, it's, you, you feel like you're transported back to 2001, 2002, um, which is, is terrifying to see. Um, you know, you have people like you know, Mark Levin, um, you, have, you have Ben Shapiro, which I don't want to give Ben Shapiro too much credit for his for, for Iraq war promotion, right? I mean, he was, I don't, can't recall off the top of my head, you know, how young he was. He was given a very elevated platform at a very young age, but I mean, I don't want to give him um, uh, you know, too much credit in hindsight for his significance back during those discussions. Um, you know, but there is a, a continuing drumbeat that if, if America doesn't do everything that Israel wants to do, um, then, you know, we, we, we go, one, that we are all at risk, two, that that will help trigger Iran or Israel into a nuclear uh, retaliation um, to, um, you know, responding to uh, uh, you know, antagonistic Middle Eastern countries, including Iran and the like. We know that Netanyahu has been pushing for a war in Iran for a very long time. Again, you know, perhaps should have spent less time focusing on Iran war plans and more time protecting the, the border of, uh, in, into the, 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 from Gaza there. Um, but, and, and also if you look at it, I mean, it's, it's interesting from the domestic Israeli perspective, right? You know, there's a lot of parallels that have been drawn uh, between 9-11 uh, and the, the recent attacks in Israel. Um, some, you have some, some very stupid, you know, sort of lines out there where people are saying, oh, well, you know, no one, in, uh, this is a, a Dr. Eli David, um, who uh, has a, is a large Twitter following, a researcher and lecturer, um, according to his bio, that, uh, well, you know, nobody was saying on 9-11 that America must retaliate proportionally. Both sides need to show restraint. Where's the proof of all the dead bodies? You're oversimplifying. There's context about the conflict you're ignoring. Let's try to de-escalate the situation for one. Like, I mean, plenty of people were, Ron Paul being um, one of the more notable exception, or examples within the American political class. Um, or at least within Congress, I don't necessarily want to tie Ron Paul to the political class. Um, <laughs> but, but, but further, though, th that all of those questions, all of those hesitancies would have been very prudent. <laughs> you know, 9-11, the, the, the response to 9-11 was an absolute disaster. And one of the, the big lessons from 9-11 was the lack of accountability on the domestic side um, for the complete breakdown of security. I know you've, you've written about this topic in the past, about the complete failure of Washington to protect citizens during 9-11. And we can question, you know, whether or not that was, you know, incompetency or, or deliberate. I know plenty of people have strong opinions on both sides of that. Um, but what I think is interesting is that there's a variety of polls out there showing that unlike the U.S., which kind of rally, rallied around um, George W. Bush coming off a very contentious election in, tw in 2000, um, within Israel that has had its own political unrest, um, its, its own divides, very strong divides within the government and issues that Netanyahu has faced in recent years, that a lot of the blame has been placed on in public opinion on Netanyahu um, for failing to defend, um, you know, for, for, for allowing this to happen under his watch for his previous um, views on Hamas and the support that uh, the Israeli state has, had provided that as a way of delegitimizing other political uh, pursuits with the Palestinians. And so it's, it's, it's going to be interesting to see what does a Israeli state that is not enjoying that sort of blind 
follow the leader mentality from the political side. Um, you know, does a, a full-on war with Iran, does that help to consolidate that base and bring the U.S. in with it? Or does that lead to more uh, discontent, more, more questioning of further escalation? We, we shall see. I mean, we are, we're still very early on in this. Um, you know, speaking of the, the oil issue, I mean, one of the major players in the region is Qatar. Um, they have threatened uh, withholding their uh, oil production as a response to the continual um, to, to Israel's continual assaults with um, with high civilian casualties within Gaza, um, so obviously the the oil as a geopolitical weapon is is not going away anytime soon. And you know, in, in the aftermath, we've actually seen um, a a deal done with Venezuela um, in exchange for some you know political uh, uh, promises by the Maduro regime, and like oh, we're going to have. You know, free and open elections the next couple of years, yada yada. Um, you know, a, a, with a removal of U.S. sanctions to help um, you know, utilize Venezuelan oil to help offset some of the Middle Eastern crisis, and see how that plays out in the long run. Um, but it, 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 you know, obviously that aspect of the situation again further heightened by American domestic policies, as you mentioned, um, is, is definitely a factor out there, um, particularly given that you know. This is not the only issue going on in the globe. You know, we're still dealing with ramifications from from Ukraine and Russia. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of fires out there. But hey, at least we can you know sleep soundly at night knowing that we are represented by Joe Biden, that uh, that, that 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 beacon of respectability on the global stage, and his crack uh, team of of geopolitical experts. So hey, you know, you know, at least at least we have that that we can be uh, assured. That very serious conversations and and you know the expert class is really looking out for our best interests there. Yeah, if uh, you wish to to place your faith in the competence and goodwill of uh, the current ruling class in Washington, I suppose you can. But uh, uh, don't come to me when you get real disappointed or incinerated by nuclear missiles. So uh, <laughs> that's uh, there is reason for very deep concern. I mean, these people just love playing with fire. And it's clear they haven't learned a darn thing. I mean, they're still talking about how the United States can still fight a three-front war, if not more. No region of the globe is not to be controlled and ruled over by, by Washington in the thinking of these people. And so this latest conflict is just going to be uh, used as yet another way to expand federal power, um, not just internationally, but here in the United States. And if you're under 40 years old, uh, you may not just, you may not remember the playbook uh, terribly well. I mean, obviously, if you were interested in this topic, then you were paying attention even back then. But uh, most people who had other things to do, uh, they may not see just how similar the playbook is shaping up to be between now and what it was in 2002, 2003, uh, in terms of raising a lot of the same threats. Uh, using a lot of the same arguments and uh, using yet again a international conflict to push great expansions in federal power. So be ready uh, to see a lot of that, um, but it'll really just come down to uh, how excited or unexcited the public is. It could be that as the economy worsens as well, that there's going to be very little enthusiasm domestically. Uh, for even more federal spending overseas while the employment situation worsens in the U.S., while life, daily life continues to become unaffordable. And I think that will probably have some effect on the situation. And, and, and there are a few domestic dynamics there that, again, this could all go out the window if, if you end up having a 
you know, a, a major terrorist attack within the United States, if you have, um, you know, uh, attacks on an aircraft carrier in the region, if, you know, there, there's, there's a variety of ways that this entire thing could change very, very quickly. Um, but there, there are few, I think, domestic differences now than what we saw in 2001 that are worth noting. One is the general um, prestige of the military writ large is much lower than it was um, you know, the, we, we've, we've talked about, we, we made multiple references to the declining recruitment rates by the U.S. Armed Forces in all branches, um, you know, not, just, not just the Army, um, but across the board that you know, they're having difficulty meeting their recruitment um, goals. And I, I think a large part of that goes to various cultural and social um, dynamics that have guided the military more than, you know, necessarily just an inherent more, you know, uneasiness over warfare and the like, but that is undermining um, a, a lot of the recruitment capabilities that American Armed Forces have. And, and because of um, alternative media, you, you do see a lot of, of I think, reflexive um, pushback towards the needs for, you know, blind support for Israel, um, you know, for this sort of bloodthirsty, um, you know, if, 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 if we don't attack them over there, they're going to attack us here, this, this sort of, you know, civilizational... Um, sort of narratives that were running rapid in the you know, peak Bush years. Um, you know, we've seen it, obviously, the uh, within you know conservative circles where you know even someone like Matt Walsh, who was with the Daily Wire, you know, a colleague of Ben Shapiro, um, I've been been very pleased to see him speak very strongly about how the extent to, to which America cannot afford another war front. Um, even I, you know, there's someone on on Fox and Friends, that hotbed of um, you know intellectual. Uh, rigor was pushing back on Mark Levin um, for some of his his statements there, um, and so again, you know, all all subject to change on a whim if things further escalate. But I, I was glad to see um, you know, there, there's still a little bit more starch in the war skeptic right than I would have thought, given the specifics of this conflict. And so hopefully the the breakdown I think you know that goes to the erosion of the influence of the corporate media. Um, the sort of everyone repeats the same talking points there. Um, I think that goes to the breakdown of the complete uniparty control of government, again, as we're seeing play out in the, the speaker's race currently on the back burner. Um, you know, there's still plenty of, you know, plenty of support for kind of uniparty, you know, bipartisan agreement um, when it comes to a variety of issues. But there's plenty of, of holdouts there as well. There's a lot more than, you know, simply, uh, you know, Ron Paul and Barbara Lee. Um, uh, you know, complaining about, you know, warning about this, that those coalitions have grown and have proven not to be easily um, trampled over. So there are some positives that we can make out from the general shift of um, kind of this, this recognition that this American empire is not, you know, providing any value to American citizens. But, you know, again, we, we, are, we are, you know, one really bad event happening from, from that being further tested still. Um, which again is, is something that I, th I think we we all recognize as a as a real terrifying threat out there. All right. Well, with that, we'll go ahead and wrap up this episode of Radio Rothbard. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back next week with another episode. So we'll see you next time. <laughs>